And it is my wonderful privilege every week to ask you to open your Bibles now to the book of Acts. We are today in chapter 3, and the sermon will deal with the entirety of chapter 3. And uh, if you are there and prepared... Hear now the word of the Lord as found in Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. Hmm. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold to give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung, that is, the lame beggar who has been healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, uh, and all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, who, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until time for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. 
Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Father, I pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. And I pray that your spirit, who so powerfully worked in the early church and in the history of the church, will continue his Uh, invaluable work in our souls today and may we be different because we've heard your word and because it has penetrated our hearts and it is working in our souls even at this moment and we pray in Jesus name amen after a transitional summary in Acts chapter 2 verses 41 to 47 portraying the community life of the new believers in Jerusalem, Luke records a second event that also signals the arrival of the last days. In keeping with the prophetic promise, the name of Jesus is emphasized and the lame leap for joy. This physical healing provides a preview, as it were, of the coming comprehensive restoration. And that is our only hope. If you are looking around for hope today and you're looking around for hope in what you can see, you're hopeless. You have every right to be in despair. But if you look at hope from the standpoint of what we're looking at this morning in Acts chapter 2, you can be greatly encouraged because our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the second coming ultimately of the Lord Christ as he comes to redeem and restore his people. So we note that on their daily visits to the temple, Peter and John brought healing here to a man crippled from birth. He'd been crippled for some 40 years. And the narrative stresses the suddenness and completeness of the cure together with the wonder and amazement of the bystanders. In the sermon that follows, and Peter takes full opportunity of this openness provided by the miracle in the temple courts, Solomon's portico. In the sermon that follows, this miracle is attributed to the glorified, ascended, exalted, enthroned Lord Jesus Christ, whose identity is proclaimed in terms of the fulfillment of numerous scriptures from the Old Testament. As Peter speaks of Christ bringing the restoration of all things, it becomes clear that the physical healing of the lame man is a sign of messianic salvation in every dimension. And so, with that, it comes also the offer of salvation, and with that also in this sermon comes a warning about continuing to reject Jesus and being cut off from the people of God. 
So the positive result of this sermon is we see, if you look over in chapter 4, is uh, about 5,000 people are added to the number of the disciples. And God had generated great uh, fruit as a result of this message. This morning, however, I want us to focus our attention. That's sort of the big picture and a short digest of what's happening in Acts chapter 3. Now we're going to dig down deep, a little deeper, and we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the miracle as a sign. Second, we're going to look at the sermon as an explanation of what this sign means. And finally, we're going to look at the prophet and the ultimate prophet, Jesus, and both the warning and hope that he offers. First, the miracle as a sign. In Luke's gospel, oddly enough, there is a similar healing of the paralytic whose dire need is identified and met by Jesus. And in this case, the risen Lord is working, continuing to work through the agency of both Peter and John and wonder and amazement ensues. And this healing does more than just bring Great joy to this man in that a man who could never walk for 40 years is leaping and praising God. But it also points to the reality of something beyond him. That the promised messianic salvation is available to be enjoyed in the present time. And in anticipation of the universal restoration that Jesus will accomplish upon his return. So let's look at a little bit at the healing of this lame man. Uh, Luke wrote about many signs and wonders done by the apostles in chapter 2 and verse 43, and now he provides us a concrete example. And first of all, notice that he includes the time of the day that it happened. Why would he do that? Well, Luke's always interested in historicity or history, and the comment at 3 in the afternoon is a detail that would be a mark of an eyewitness account. If you're only doing legends and myths, you don't include such unnecessary details. Second, it demonstrates the power of God. The physical ailment was not a passing injury, but was congenital. It was severe. It was permanent. Now think about that. This man had to be carried daily to the beautiful gate, laid there. Uh, he was a fixture, I'm sure, as people went back and forth from the temple. He was there every day, and as people are there every day as a fixture, you can easily walk right by them without ever seeing them, without ever noticing them, because they're there every day. And so there he is. And so he's crippled from birth. He's helpless. There's nothing he can do to improve his situation. The best he can do is receive enough alms to get, to get by, and he was still dependent upon people to carry him around. But all of a sudden, something happens. Peter and John, notice that they said, look at me or stare at us. Look at me in the face, is what they're literally saying when they come to the man who uh, asked them, uh, for alms and he says look in my face why because if you've ever been around handicapped people there are times when uh, especially a beggar like this never makes eye contact with you why I don't know if it's shame or I don't know if it's difficulty in begging but it's just an uncomfortable thing to do but Peter wanted the man to look at him and so he did and Peter said silver and gold I, have I none, but I offer you really the only thing I do have, and that is in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he reached down to lift him up, and he did. And so it demonstrates the Messiah has come. 
This is, by the way, a fulfilled prophecy from Isaiah 35, verse 6, which says, when Messiah comes, then will the lame leap like a deer. And that is exactly what this man does, walking and jumping. And the jumping is a vivid, wonderful picture, another eyewitness account detail. And it demonstrates the first principle of God's work, that divine power comes in the act of faith and not before it. Peter takes the crippled man by the right hand. He helps him. But it was not until this man got on his feet that his ankles were strengthened. And it's interesting to notice he felt no power before he got up. But when he got up, he did feel it. And so God's strength comes to us in amazing and powerful ways. And it demonstrates a second principle of God's work that usually we begin seeking far less than what God really wants to give us. All the man wanted was money, but he got a whole lot more than what he expected. He got physical healing. And probably salvation, as chapter 4.14 indicates, he took up with the company of the disciples. Even so, a person ordinarily goes to God just for help with a problem or strength in time or need or forgiveness for a particular uh, sin. You know, a lot of people don't want... Uh, they want help from God, but they don't want him to interfere with their personal lives. But this guy got more than he bargained for and more than he asked for, and God ends up making far greater changes in our lives than we ever envisioned. C.S. Lewis, the quotes in the front of your bulletin, says this in Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself a living house, that is, you are seeing yourself as a living house. You ask God to make some repairs. At first, he's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. And that, is that not how it is? when God is at work in our souls. And so it's amazing that not only did he change this man's life, but he demonstrated that God changed his life in order to draw others to hear the gospel. It is because of the clear change in the man's life that a crowd gathered was open to the hearing of the gospel. Now, I wanted to say another thing about this particular miracle that I found helpful in thinking about because uh, you know we are living in the corona zone and the corona days and it's a tough time for so many and uh, so they bring about healing to this lame man but I, I want you to think about how people must have regarded this man because people struggled with suffering in the first century as much or more than they do now I mean, how is it that those of us who believe in the Lord in a Christian way are, are reverent and believing, but people seem to look at a guy like this and say, why, if there's a creator who is all-loving and all-powerful and all-knowing, why does he have creatures in his world who suffer congenital deformity in the first place? How is it that there are any mentally or physically handicapped people 
who need the compassion of their fellow creatures. Reverent and believing minds accept the biblical explanation that the spiritual and mental and physical wreckage of the human race is the result of the fall. It's a result of the fall. And even that, so far as it goes, is a more noble and hopeful explanation than the bleak theory that is only the result to be expected from an impersonal, purposeless forces acting undesignedly on blind matter and producing chance personal beings doomed to eventually be mindlessly destroyed by the same blind impersonal forces. But granted, we accept with the mind that wreckage is a result of mankind's original rebellion against the Creator, the heart still has irresistible questions. Does the Creator himself not hear the cries of his broken creation? And if he does, does he not propose to do something about it uh, himself before asking us to show compassion? And if not, how could we who happen at this moment to be healthy, continue long to worship him in his temple for his love and compassion. Would not the cries and the groans of the deformed outside the temple choke the praises of those inside the temple? Though all the Christians in the world gave all their money and worked their knuckles to the bone in the relief of suffering, it could never be the final answer to the question of this kind. And as far as the world outside is concerned, if all that the Christian gospel could say in the face of the world's pain, that we ought to act like the Good Samaritan and do our best to help each other, our gospel would in the end deserve not the world's gratitude, but its pity, if not its contempt. Christianity would need to have a better answer than that if it's to speak credibly in the name of an all-loving and all-powerful creator and redeemer. And of course, it has such an answer. Having no money to give to the cripple, Peter gives him something far better. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he performed a miracle. He removed the disability. He gave him perfect soundness in body. And the man was ecstatic with delight. And he accompanied the apostles into the temple, leaping and praising of God. And that was delightful, of course. But for, her, for us, at least, who read the story, it leaves our original questions largely unanswered. Indeed, it adds to them. If the risen Christ did enable the apostles to perform such miracles from time to time, and none of us doubt that he did, why did he not command them to drop everything else and proceed systematically to rid the whole country of every kind of conceivable kind of sickness and malady? Luke records in chapter 5 that they, uh, that they healed all that were brought to them from the district surrounding Jerusalem. Then why did not Christ have them take the next 20 years and heal every sick person in the Roman Empire? That really would have won entry into the secular history books for Christianity, but there's no evidence that the apostles even attempted to do that. And then, of course, the Jerusalem crowd who recognized the cripple could see for themselves that an astounding miracle had occurred. And so perhaps the sight of a lame man now walking and leaping and praising God struck a deep chord in their minds. They would have attended this, their synagogues from childhood and heard the law and heard the prophets read every Sabbath day. And some passages in the prophets were 
positively lyrical when they talked about the coming messianic reign. For example, Isaiah 35, I mentioned earlier. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. The cynical and unbelieving, of course, dismissed it as utopian fantasy. The faithful in Israel, on the other hand, believed the promise. The simple-hearted took it literally. The more sophisticated read it as poetic description. Both derived immense comfort and hope from it, and thousands of believing Jews and Christians have done all throughout the painful centuries and still do. But now, what was this? A lame man leaping. Was this the messianic age begun? Were the prophets being fulfilled in front of their very eyes? And literally at that, Peter's answer to this question is beyond dispute. No, this is not the messianic age begun. His exposition of Joel on the day of Pentecost had pinpointed their position. They were at least in the days of the present age. The age to come had dawned but had not been completed yet. And the miracle just performed was like the miracle the Lord himself did, simply a sign pointing to an ultimate age in which wholeness of life will come. In other words, what we have to say to people is this healing of this lame man points to something far beyond physical healing. It points to the ultimate hope of the times of refreshing and the times of restoration that will come. When you look and see a broken world around you and you wonder why doesn't God do something, he has done something and he is doing something. His son went to the cross to right everything that's wrong with this place and God is in process uh, in the kingdom of restoring that which is broken through the power of the gospel and through the power of his spirit in the church. But there's still a not yet level to it in which we are anticipating the coming. But God has already done something about it. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, why didn't he just end it? Why doesn't he do it now? Why doesn't he just send Jesus back at this very moment, transform everything that is into the beauty? Because God has a big, compassionate, loving heart, and he has a people to call to himself, and he hadn't called them all yet. So that's why we wait. That's why we wait. That's why the miracles don't always come now. Because God uh, has such a desire to rescue the perishing that belong to him. Well, I thought that would be interesting to entertain that. Now, what essential facts does Peter tell them about Jesus? What three kinds of evidence does he give from these facts? Peter provides in the sermon that follows a fairly comprehensive view of the person and work of Jesus. In verse 14, he refers to Jesus' deity when he calls him the Holy and Righteous One. Anyone with any Old Testament knowledge would know that's pointing to Yahweh. And so he points to Jesus as the holy and righteous one. Second, he points to Jesus' suffering and death, saying that Christ would suffer. Third, he declares that Jesus was raised from the dead, verse 15, and is coming again to renew the world, verses 20 through 22. And it is because he is alive that he can send his power into our lives. The evidence he gives here is both objective, that is outside of us, and subjective. 
Objectively, Peter says we are witnesses of this. That is the physical resurrection of Jesus. This is a testimony of a historical event, eyewitness accounts. So Peter does not make a purely emotional or pragmatic appeal. He does not say, I know he's risen because he lives within my heart. But on the other hand, Peter does appeal to subjective evidence. He points to the changed lives. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given complete healing to him, as you all can see. Verse 16. Evidence of changed lives or healing cannot by all by itself prove Jesus is real. On the other hand, objective arguments do not persuade the whole person. A combination is needed. And so... Peter goes on to expound the Old Testament, and it's strikingly Christocentric, that is Christ-centered. He says that uh, God had spoken about Jesus through all the prophets, verse 18. He says Jesus is the fulfillment of the suffering servant prophecies in Isaiah 52 and 53, and is the fulfillment of the prediction of the final prophet by Moses, and is the Davidic king. And his promise is the promised seed of Abraham. This is really an astounding view. Peter shows that every major figure, David, Moses, Abraham, was really a type or a foreshadowing of Christ. Christ is the ultimate prophet, the greater Moses, bringing us the truth in a way no one else ever could. Christ is the ultimate king, a greater Davidite, delivering us and ruling us in a way that no one else could. And Christ is the ultimate and universal blessing for the world, the child of Abraham through whom every nation would find salvation. Of course, the Holy Spirit would have been prompting Peter in an unusual way since he was an apostle. But what an amazing grasp of the Old Testament Peter has as he reveals that the risen Jesus must have trained his disciples extremely well in Bible and theology. What we actually get is a picture of the curriculum that Jesus went through with his disciples for 40 days before he ascended. He said to them, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Torah, the law of Moses. Second, in the prophets, the Nabaim in Hebrew, and the Ketavim, the Psalms, the writings. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand scriptures. And that was the main thing Jesus did. Show them literally how everything in the Old Testament, the law, the Psalms, the history, every prophet, every priest, every king, every hero was really about him. Now, what's the importance of seeing Christ in the Old Testament? I'm glad you asked me because I'm going to tell you. If we do not see Jesus behind everything in the Bible, then we will read every character as only moral examples, and that will load us up with guilt that we cannot bear. But they are not just that. They are pictures of our Savior. And when we see them as that, we learn hope and how God's grace works, and we're motivated out of the hope and grace to live as God calls us to. For example, David in fighting Goliath was just our moral example. If David fighting Goliath was just our moral example, then it's a rather crushing one. David teaches us that we should take on great tasks without fear. A hard example to follow. But if David points to Christ, 
We see that David was the champion, the one who fought representatively for the people so that his victory was their victory. He risked his life and saved the whole people. That points us to Jesus, who gave his life and saved the whole people. As our representative, his victory is my victory. Then David first becomes a picture of our salvation by grace. It also helps us understand why God could keep using him in dis despite his colossal failures that we read about in the life of David. It was for the sake of the greater son that God could use David as a mini-champion like a mini-me, but a mini-champion, then strengthened by this vivid and affecting new picture of the gospel, we can then go back and see David as an example. He was the anointed redeemer, and through the true anointed redeemer, we too can take risks and trust God and save others. And so that's how you should read the sermons and acts Peter is giving us uh, in living print, in color, too, from the stories of the Old Covenant, a picture of Christ. So how does Peter in this text tell his listeners what they must do to receive Christ? It's similar, but a little different to what he did in Acts chapter 2. The heart of what Peter is inviting his listeners to do is in verse 19. There he mentions two things. He says, first, they must repent. And we talked about that a lot last week. Repentance, metanoia, means more than sorrow over sin. It literally means a change of mind. Repentance is to change one's whole approach to God. It means ultimately, and hear this well, to approach God on the basis and through Jesus' work and record, not on the basis through our work and record. Here's what repentance is. Repentance is not adopting a new religion and entering into some kind of contract with God where I work and therefore I work and try to do what I believe God wants me to do and I put God in debt to me because I work. Then I present my record to the God and he owes me, because of what I've done, a good life. Salvation is repenting totally from that kind of mindset. Your mind is completely changed by the gospel to see that we have no quid pro quo relationship with the Father. But it's ingrained in our being. The covenant of works is our nature and is twisted by the fall to cause us to want to work out a deal, negotiate a relationship with God, put him in debt to me so that he will bless me. But the gospel is this. Jesus came and he works. He lives a life of perfect obedience that I am required to live. He dies a death in my place where he suffers the punishment for all of my failure to live the life God called me to live and all of my sin against him. He resurrects on the third day indicating God has accepted his work. I now rely on his record and in union with him I receive all his benefits. Along with this comes a changed life. And this is the good news. Here's the problem with most Christians. They, they, they haven't really understood the nature of true repentance. It's not just once. It's continually repenting of my slavery to self-righteousness. 
George Whitfield said the last idol to go in anybody's life is the idol of self-righteousness. What is self-righteousness? It is deciding I'm going to generate my own righteousness by what I do and put God in debt to me. And so a lot of people who profess Christianity have not yet changed their minds. That hasn't occurred yet in their understanding of Christianity. And here's why so many get so bitter and so upset and turn and walk away. Why? Because God doesn't deliver. If I'm in a contract with God and I think I've done what I should do and he should bless me, you ever heard a Christian say that? Have you ever heard a Christian say, why is this happening in my life? I'm a Christian. I'm God's child. I go to church. I'm faithful. I read my Bible. I pray. I share my faith. I give sacrificially. Why is this happening to me? God is not delivering for me the kind of life I think he should deliver me. Why is this suffering happening? Why is this hardship happening? And so a bitter root springs up in that person's life, and they resent God. But a true repentant person understands that not only do we turn away from our sin, but we turn to God. It's another way of saying believe, and it's an excellent way to avoid a common mistake. Just as many people think of repentance as just simply sorrow over sin, many people think that believing is an intellectual agreement. But saving faith is not to simply agree that Jesus died, but actually to live in a relationship with God in reliance on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection. Saving faith is a real turning and going to God to seek Him, to know Him, and to love Him. For often, what's separating us from Christ and the enjoyment of His benefits is not so much our sin, but as John Gerstner said, our damnable good works. As long as we think we're good without Him, we will never seek Him as our Savior and our Lord. And so therefore, to understand true repentance and true faith, they never stand alone. To repent is to turn away from one way and thus turn to another way. So repentance turning away from and faith turning toward and repentance and faith are simply two sides of the same coin. And we see that happen here. As people begin to understand that I've got the whole thing wrong. I mean, I, I've been living by the covenant of works. And the covenant of works says, if you obey, you will be blessed. If you do what I have told you to do, you will live. But the Christian understands that I can't do that. I will never be able to do that. In a thousand lifetimes, I could never fulfill that because I'm a sinner. Is there any hope for me? And the hope for you is Jesus who came and fulfilled God's covenant of works on your behalf and now gives you the benefits of that as you turn and are connected to him through faith. I don't want to talk so much about the benefits, and Peter will list some in a moment, but the benefits can't be separated from the person you're connected to. Once you get Christ, once you are connected to him by faith and living in a reliance upon him, you get all his benefits, all his benefits. So Peter says, repent and turn. Now, Peter does promise three things as a result of receiving Christ. First, he promises that your sins will be wiped out. The Greek word here is ex alipho, which means to wash off, 
or obliterate or blot out without a trace. Papyrus in the first century, when they put ink on papyrus, they didn't etch it into the skin. Therefore, it was on the surface. And all you had to do to erase a papyrus was simply take water and blot it out. And that is exactly what this thing says. It means our sins are gone. God has sent them away as if they had never been committed. He remembers them against us no more. And he promises times of refreshing Refreshing will come from the Lord. The Greek word anasixis means relief or re-energizing. It means that God will not simply wipe away our sins legally, but he will infuse us with his spirit and power. And Peter says that Christ blesses us by turning us from our wicked ways in verse 26. So again, we see that God's blessing is not simply forgiveness, but a changed life. He will change us. He will change our character. He will change our heart. He will change our power or our behavior with an infusion of power. Wiping out of sins is always accompanied, accompanied by the joy of heart refreshment. The change of life turning from wicked ways. And third, he promises that Jesus will return to restore everything as he promised long ago. This means that Christians don't only hope for their individual and personal restoration of soul, we can also look to the total and complete and cosmic restoration of the universe, materially as well as spiritually, so that all sickness, all death, all disease, all decay will be healed, and spiritually so that all confusion, evil, hate, coronavirus, and sin will be healed. The Greek word for restoration means literally regeneration. Regeneration. The whole world, nature itself, will be born again. So the Christian is not concerned with helping, only concerned with helping people be spiritually healed, which is significant beyond what I can say, but also concerned with facilitating psychological, social, and physical healing as well. Getting close to the end here. But I wanted to leave you with two or three quick applications from this sermon that I think uh, are powerful. Number one, notice how Peter capitalizes on opportunity for witness whenever he smells or senses openness. What about you? If you're just on your toes just a little bit, and you're interacting with people and friends and coworkers less lately than before, but still, some of us are around people who don't know Jesus, then we could look for fresh opportunities to have a gospel conversation with people. We don't force it. We don't have to be heavily confronted. We don't have to hit them over the head with the family Bible. But when we see people amazed at this healing, as Peter did, he uses their interest as a bridge into the gospel. He did the same thing in Acts 2 when Pentecost happened. Granted, these are spectacular, but the principle is universal. We, too, must look for times of openness when a listener's interest in spiritual issues is piqued either by trouble in their own lives or an inexplicable influence of God in someone they know, and so on. There are people now who are terrified 
by this virus. They are terrified. They are losing sleep. Some are suicidal over the prospect of catching this virus and dying. And I would encourage you that if you're around people like that and you have conversations with them, look for opportunities. That's a wide door swinging open for the gospel. And it doesn't take a brilliant theologian to make that connection. The Lord says we can trust him and not be afraid. That we can find confidence and hope in knowing him. And that this life is not all there is. That there's so much more. The second thing I notice about Peter, and you'll notice this throughout the book of Acts, is Peter always adapts to his audience. He doesn't just exegete the Old Testament, but he exegetes the crowd he's preaching to. And so this passage is filled with Old Testament references. Uh, If you did that today in a public forum in preaching, most people don't know enough about the Bible, don't have enough Old Testament in the bank to even follow what you're talking about. They had no idea that Moses was a prophet and that one greater than Moses would come. They might have heard of David or they might have heard of Abraham or they might have heard of stories in the Old Testament, but they don't see it. They don't get it. But Peter's audience did, and so therefore he identified them as brothers. He used the scriptures extensively since the Bible was a recognized authority for them in the same way. We must be careful to know the people we are trying to reach to share life with them as much as possible and to appeal to authorities they respect in order to make our case for the gospel. And Paul will do that very thing on Mars Hill. So as you're sharing your faith, Look at the person. Perceive what their felt needs are. Perceive what their real needs are. And tailor your gospel presentation, which is the same thing in every case, to the people you're talking for. And Peter shows a combination of respect and sympathy balanced with directness and force. Notice in verse 17, he takes sort of a soft tone. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. Now, that's profound. He shows respect for their doubts. He shows that he knows how easy it was to be led astray and how difficult it is to keep informed enough to make a right decision in the matters of Christ. On the other hand, he does not say because they were ignorant and therefore they are not guilty or responsible for their unbelief, they are. And he calls them to repent. So that it means they're not innocent. And he's extremely categorical when he says anyone who does not listen to him will be completely destroyed or cut off from among his people. Peter shows both a gentleness and a directness, a boldness and a tenderness, a humility grounded in the truth of God and at the same time a sensitivity. But a boldness, a directness to speak the truth. If you're just bold, you're just direct, you're just blunt, you'll wound a lot of people. And if you're just uh, humble and if you're just sweet and you're just nice and you just have a soft tone, people don't get the truth. And so there's got to be a combination of those. Where do we get that? We get that from believing the gospel. We get that from the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But this is what we see in this glorious third chapter of the book of Acts. As it opens up the door for us in many ways to show us the nature of God's kingdom. And so the Christian life is lived 
in the tension of what we've always called the already, salvation already, and salvation not yet. Peter's sermon has announced that Jesus is the righteous servant of the Lord. Although disowned by the people, Jesus was glorified by God, and in Jesus salvation has arrived and was then present. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel and on spoke and foretold of these days. The promised blessing of all people through Abraham's seed had begun with the sending of the servant to Israel. Yet the fullness of this messianic restoration has not yet arrived. The season of refreshing and the times of restoration of all things still await the sending of Jesus, the appointed Messiah from heaven. The coming of Jesus will indeed complete the fulfillment of the promises spoken by God long ago through the holy prophets. But the reassembly of things that fall apart in creation must await that day. God patiently waits to set all that is wrong in this creation. The patience prolongs the pain for those who long for the righteous kingdom, but it mercifully holds open a door of repentance for those who have defiled the creation and, def uh, and defied its creator. When, when uh, Peter speaks at Solomon's portico and tells people to repent, he's telling them that that is the way to enter the kingdom of God. Now things fall apart, and suffering and, and death dog our steps. But the reversal of cosmic entropy has begun in the resurrection of Jesus. Faith in the name of Jesus, germinating from the Spirit's witness, is the seed which will grow into the restoration of all things. And that is our hope. And there is no other hope. That is our hope. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for Acts chapter 3. We thank you that it has been recorded and preserved for us because it speaks right to us. We are the people who need to hear God's word today. We are the people who need to repent daily. We are the people who need to rely on Jesus and stop relying on our own record. Stop relying on our latest attempts of trying to be good or our, our uh uh, attempts of trying to remake ourselves and, and uh, turn over a new leaf and, and become a better person. Help us to cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ, recognizing that He has done everything necessary to reconcile sinners like us into a relationship of joy and refreshment. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, would you please be continued to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.